Author Sarah Billups writes this in her book, Orphaned Believers. Many of us are questioning if it's worth staying in the church as we know it. The problem is, as hard as it may be, and with very few exceptions, captivity, a desert island, we can't fully experience Jesus without some form of Christian community. This book is for you, orphaned believer, weary from loss, and yet putting full hope in Jesus. It is also for you who have left church and remain compelled by the Christian story, because the Spirit of God can work even and especially in our wandering. Stay tuned. Sarah joins me for this episode for a conversation about orphaned believers. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith, while untangling it from all that is not good or true. This is the place for you. I'm not sure what your impression is of counseling. Maybe it sounds scary to you. I used to have this idea that counselors would be able to read my mind and all the things I didn't want anyone to know about would suddenly be revealed. And then I started going to a counselor and experienced what it was really like. Guess what? I got to decide what I was ready to talk about with my counselor. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, Faithful Counseling makes it so easy to get started. You can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. They are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com untangled, fill out a questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Before we get into the show, I also want to remind you that the second anniversary of the show is this month, and I would love your help. If you have a question you would like for me to answer on the show, go to untangledfaithpodcast.com slash anniversary, and there's a form you can fill out that sends your questions straight to me. I can't wait to hear from you. Two months ago, Sarah Billups' book, Orphan Believers, How a Generation of Christian Exiles Can Find the Way Home, released. I recorded an interview with her late last year, and technology failed us, and we had to do a take two on our conversation, but I'm so glad we did. The result was a much more rich and powerful conversation this time. I'm eager to share this with you. Here's our conversation. I have a whole list of questions for you, but first of all, I would love for you to introduce who is Sarah Billups to my Untangled Faith audience. And tell me why your kid thinks you have a demon. <laughs> um, well, Amy, thanks for having me. It's really fun to talk. And uh, so, yeah, my name is Sarah Billups. I'm a, I'm a writer living in Seattle. been here almost 20 years, which is wild, which is just crazy to think about how, how time moves. But I grew up in Indiana, so I was born and raised in the Midwest and mm-hmm. Uh, moved out with my husband to try intentional community and living with friends in the early 2000s when that was really a popular kind of like experiencing a bit of a renaissance. Um, and we did that for a couple of years here and then ended up moving into a season of of a lot of confusion about my faith and began to kind of hide my 
my belief in God with what I did during the rest of the week, just having a, a desk job. And I began to walk through, I guess what I say is 10 or 12 years of a spiritual desert where mm-hmm. I, I was unable to kind of reconcile my Christian identity with my living in Seattle life. Um, I uh, began to write privately about faith and culture in 2018. 2016, 2017. And then in 2018, I began to share that writing and have just released a book um, earlier in 2023 called Orphaned Believers um, from Baker. So my first book is now in the world. I have it in my hands. Oh, there it is. It's so pretty. I love it. So tell me about why your kids think you have a demon. Oh, thank you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That will, I love it. It'll never get old. So my, so I'm also, uh, more than halfway through a doctor of ministry program, aka Demon, at a Western Seminary in Michigan. Um, it's a part of the Eugene Peterson Center that Win Collier started, and the cohort is called the Sacred Art of Writing. So it's been a totally unexpected and very cool part of the last few years. I'd certainly say, a if not the bright spot of the pandemic, has been able to has been been going through this program with other writers and yeah. and friends. Uh, it's been quite special. I didn't even know that was a thing. So yeah, saying that you have a, you're working on a doctorate, <laughs> but it's a special kind of doctorate. Yeah, yeah, it's like a practitioner's doctorate. So I'll I'll finish the program ideally with about half half a book's worth of new material. So I'm working on some new things. Um, but you know, it's not a PhD. You'd have to defend a dissertation. So it's just a little bit, a little yeah. bit different. A little bit different and not an MD. So if you were on an airplane and someone says, is there a doctor on the plane? I probably would would wither under my seat. No, that would not be. (laughs) I might be a a doctor of feeling. What maybe like feeling. Can I write about what's happening? I have some really good words for this. (laughs) One of the things I love about this book is that you built this book, Orphaned Believers, on the scaffolding of your relationship with your dad, which is really beautiful. I relate so much. I was born in 1976 to a dad who was born in 1948, who served, who was served in Vietnam. Um, He was drafted and the world, our worlds are so very different. And so I am so curious about how, why you decided to kind of use that as, as your frame to frame the story and how tricky is that when you are trying to honor your dad while also really looking and evaluating some of the good and the bad of things that you have, that he has brought, that he has, you know, introduced yeah. into your life? Totally. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a good question and something I've tried to do faithfully and with integrity and with care. Um, but I, I think I'm, I've tried to walk a pretty fine line. So my, you know, my dad got saved. Um, so he was born the same year as your dad, 1948. It sounds like we're just a couple of years apart mm-hmm. ourselves, Amy. And, um, he was, uh, raised in a Jewish household, was saved like pretty radically, um, after attending a Bible study on the book of Daniel and prophecy, he was at a friend's apartment building in Indiana and in Fort Wayne. And just has this, the way he tells it, it sounds like a movie scene, but he said he just leapt over the couch and ran to the parking lot and fell on his face and just like received, asked God into his life. He completely like surrendered. Mm. Um, and and something changed when my mom, so 
My mom saw him months later. They had been separated at the time and she didn't recognize him. She saw him, but for a moment, she didn't know who he was because his face had had changed. Something had lifted. His countenance was different. So there was a beautiful change of heart and reorientation of his priorities and just a goodness that filled him as he tells the story and as my mom does. Um, He was also in that era, though, like next to the Bible on his bed was the Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, which was this book about the rapture that was so ubiquitous in culture at the time that Mm -hmm. there was an Orson Welles narrated TV special that millions of people saw. The book sold more copies than The Joy of Sex. It was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so it was just this kind of like uh, tapping into a larger cultural kind of fear of the Red Scare and of Russia and of Armageddon, and that's language Reagan used. So my dad was really, you know, saved in an era and came into his like tender young faith in that in an era where there was a lot of fear. And so by the time I came along, I heard about Jesus loving me, and I also heard that I would be um, that I would be raptured and not be able to start a family or a career, which like many peers did. And that was a very common theme for yeah. my husband and a lot of our friends and many people that are kind of Gen X millennial. Um, and so I wanted to understand, thinking about the church today, I wanted to look back at the 80s and 90s and understand what happened. And I realized that to tell that story well, I had to understand personally what happened with my dad and I and and how he did his best, but yet really raised me in a fear-based faith that took me a long time to begin to kind of unpeel and to keep what was good and true and to let go of some yeah. pieces that were really rooted in in fear. And so I um I wrote, I hope in a way that was honest, but also interestingly, you know, my dad is not well. He has a uncurable cancer, and I didn't know if he would be be here to see the book. And so yeah. I can report happily that um, we had a book launch, like a little party in Seattle, and my dad was able to be there. So I was able to bring him up in front of everybody and read a little bit of the book he was in and honor him and everyone clapped. It was like a very sweet, surprising moment. And so he's. we've had a lot of interesting conversations since that have kind of worked through some things I don't think he realized about my childhood. So it's actually been a very healing process, just the book being in the world, which was certainly not guaranteed. It sound actually, I read it and I see your dad, this character, a real person in this story. And I do not see him as a bad guy. I just see him as the way you handled talking about him, your love and respect for him, the nuance that is carried in that and, and the way that you give, you extend all this grace and understanding of like, I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's not a shame. It's not a shame thing of like, what have you done to me, dad? It's a, I understand how, why that book was on your, your bookshelf. We had the, you know, how many reasons why the Lord's going to, 86 reasons why the Lord's going to return in 1986. That's right. Remember, and they had chosen like three different dates that it could be because nobody knows the date or the time, Mm -hmm. but the explanation was, well, maybe it was one of these days. I think it was probably in September or something. And there had been um, wildfires out west. And I remember mm-hmm. opening the door one day and the, the sun was like, it, it was like, like orange yeah. and it was red. And we're like, is this it? Is this it? And I was like, oh, I really hope the Lord doesn't return while I'm doing something. I don't want him to see. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, my my spiritual director, Shelly, actually remembers something very similar with seeing kind of this 
apocalyptic like kind of sun and thinking that was the moment that's interesting yeah, yeah. you know I, I my dad they like he loved me well he did his best but yeah it's it's complicated right and the other thing is when we talk about rapture stuff it sounds I think it can sound pretty kitschy especially if you didn't grow up in it or sort of this yeah retro kind of thing but there is a there was a real palpable fear that um that Jesus was going to return and you wouldn't get to live your life or you you wouldn't be raptured and you'd have to go through the seven year tribulation period and you couldn't have you know there was a it was a real sort of intuitive thing that stays with a kid for a long time yeah so it is it sounds funny to talk about and it kind of is kind of like christian scare movies like thief in the night those are so funny i went and rewatched they're ridiculous but i remember that feeling i can that same feeling in my gut was there even in my 40s you still feel it like oh my goodness there's going to be a movie of my life and everyone's going to watch it (laughs) i'm not sure where that came from initially um this isn't like this is sort of tangential not really we're 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 staying close to the book here but here's there's a question i have and i think a lot of my listeners will have how do you how did you approach these conversations with your dad and Mm -hmm. how awkward was it like when you're Mm -hmm. talking about different changes in how you view things that were a part of your life growing up like how what sort of words of encouragement do you have to somebody that's like I don't I don't know how to do this and it has been sort of a dumpster fire yeah well yeah I'm I'm reading uh Mary Carr's Art of Memoir which I had not read um as a part of my demon (laughs) so I'm reading this (laughs) and the way she talks about telling the stories of of your family was really it was clarifying to me and I wish I'd read it before I'd written Orphaned Believers honestly but my dad and I um we ended up taking a trip to the ocean one day. We drove about three hours. Um, he still he still very much believes that he will be raptured and that Jesus will return before he dies. And I wanted to understand if that was really true. I didn't see how my father's um, cancer diagnosis and his illness, um, how he could still believe something when it's clear that he's towards the end of his life. I thought he was just trying to self-soothe. I didn't, I didn't get it. And so he said it was close to Jewish New Year one year, and I read the first um, the first year of the pandemic. And he said, "I think the world's going to end um, on this weekend. Um, I think we should go to the ocean because it'd be cool to be raptured, you know, at in a beautiful place." And I said, "Dad, are you serious?" I, he's like, "I think we should go though on Friday because in Israel it's a a day later." So I, I thought, this is this is wild. I can't believe he's saying this, but you know what? I'm going to go with him and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to see what I can hear and learn. And so we drove. And when we drove, I had my laptop in my lap and I just asked him questions. I said, tell me about what happened when you got saved. And t- we just, we had a talk for a long time and I got a ton of really good insight into his life and the context of when he was saved and asked him a lot of questions about how we can still believe what he does and what happens if he's wrong. And aren't you just afraid dad and you're saying, you know, so it was a really mm-hmm. good experience. So I think what I, what I'd say to listeners is if you can try to get into a different context and just doing that. So we got to the beach, we walked around for 20 minutes and got back in the car and got Dairy Queen and, and drove back, you know, it was, and it, it was more quiet on the way home, but I still was able to kind of ask and understand and listen. And so I think I would say, Try to get it into a different context where you are together for a few hours and just listen. You know, there's, I think, a way that folks that are a little bit older want to pass down stories. And so it can be more about understanding their context and memories than about 
something confrontational. I didn't have the need to say to him that was, I think I did say that was hurtful, but I, I don't think that I needed to kind of air my laundry. I just wanted to, to hear what he had to say. Yeah, that's helpful. I recently, my brother recently passed away unexpectedly. Um, and so I went home to be and stayed with my dad and so stepmom. Thank you. Yeah. He um, had acute pancreatitis that happened and like 20% of the time your body just shuts down. And that's what happened with my brother. He'd had a lot of other physical things. And so I found myself staying with my dad and mm. stepmom. My mom passed away. So my dad had remarried and having these days with my dad. Um, and we have also built a little bit of uh, learning how to communicate with each other. Just in the last year, my dad, because he loves me dearly, he agreed to do counseling with me. Even though he's in Minnesota, I'm in Nashville. We did this online. He right. said yes. His worst nightmare, right. having to talk about his feelings. Right. Um, right. My dog is coughing in the background. I mean, if my if my if my dad would ever do counseling, I would throw a party. That's that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's just a that's sign that he special. of how much he loves me, and mm -hmm. it was painful there were some times that were just so great and other times that were really painful but in the end we just we learned to communicate better and so being with him then in his own environment he lives in this um retirement co-op place everybody mm -hmm. loves my dad and to mm -hmm. see him as a real person that's good. Yeah. With like, you know, as the kids say, touch grass, you know, get off mm -hmm. of the, the internet things, like actually be in, uh, you know, physical proximity to him having conversations. And it was so good to remember it's how much he loves me, all that has formed him. And I made it four days without arguing with him about politics. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a big feat too, Amy. That's lovely. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then at the end of that conversation, my stepmom's like, I think maybe it's bedtime. I think you should hug each other. <laughs> and let's just go to bed. <laughs> That's um, so good. And we yeah. did. We did. Um, so I just, I love, I just, I feel like I resonate a lot with this picture of your dad and these nuanced influences on our life that love us so much and love Jesus and sometimes drive us nuts but aren't like evil. So you have to do the work, right? You can't just say no contact, no relationship. I don't want to, I'm not going to do this. No, we have to like lean in and it's a little messy and it's a little hard, but I have found that it is ultimately very much worth it. I feel like we are like our Venn diagram overlaps quite a bit there. There sounds like it. I'm pretty sure that our, our dads would be uh, fast friends. Too, yes, I think they would. <laughs> so as I was looking through some things I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned that there there's like there's three sections of your book that you talk about things that really became big in our growing up years, 80s and 90s, um, and that cultural things that have in, that impacted the white evangelical church. Um, and mm -hmm you know what they were here, you know, the obsession with the end times, culture wars and consumerism. Let's talk a little bit more about being an end times kid. Mm -hmm. And like, how did you see that forming our church experience? And those of us that yeah. have grown up in it and those of us that, you know, our, our parents, yeah, our parents and us, um, what sort of went wrong with that? Yeah. What was the yeah. good and the bad, maybe? Totally. I think that the 
the, the, I'm thinking of, of two of two kind of results that I think were there's the personal stuff that we've talked about. You know, I think a lot of us had to unpack that for a while and maybe are still unpacking uh, unpacking that kind of theology and, and what that might mean if you're raised kind of being afraid. Um, but there's this other other dynamic that happened at least to our family and maybe to others is there was this sense of a sense of exceptionalism that formed where I knew that we were going to be raptured and we were saved, um, but we needed to tell our friends and family so that they didn't accept the mark of the beast or they were left behind, yes. right? Yes. So we, um, I had a responsibility and it was, it was sort of, it, it did feel a little bit dramatic to my young mind. I was, you know, 10 years old trying to talk to different people in my life through high school. And I talk in the book about this memory of my best friend and I went to this ice cream shop and I remember sitting in the back booth and telling her what was going to happen. She was Lutheran, right? And to me, that that was not evangelical. So she's like, <laughs> she needed to be, be saved behind. still in your, in your heart yep. and mind. She needed to be so saved. We were happy. Yes. She ordered a banana split. We're sitting there and I was telling her like, first there's going to be the seven year tribulation period. And I was going through the whole spiel. And by the time I had mentioned the battle of Gog and Magog, like her, I can see her mouth hanging open and her spoon in her hand, like suspended. Like, what is she talking about? You know? So it really was until it wasn't until I kind of finished high school and got to college that I began to question some of this stuff. But I think that there was this other, there was also this feeling besides having an onus to to share the good news so people wouldn't be left behind. There was this sense that our family knew what was going to happen. And when you have that sense of understanding where things are going, there's a sense of, like I mentioned, exceptionalism or kind of a power differentials. Like I have something to offer you and I have hidden knowledge. And that same dynamic, I certainly think we see today with QAnon and conspiracy theories, a, a cohort of people thinking they have a better understanding of kind of hidden secrets and where things are going. And I so that that kind of reckless and harmful thinking can easily be traced back, you know, to when, when we were kids. Now for a quick break. Now back to the show. The other thing I'd say about the end times is the kind of corporate lack of responsibility that we then had for the earth. I mean, oh yes. I remember having a general sense Earth Day wasn't really important. I mean, if the earth was gonna burn maybe we could spend our time doing other things and not trying to preserve the planet. So there was a real lack of, to say a lack of creation care is an understatement. We just didn't, we just didn't care, you know? And so there, I think the environmental piece was really, really sad and missing from, from the end times point of view, for sure. At yeah, least for I us. saw that. Yeah. I, I resonate with that. It's just, you're like, well, yeah, it's going to burn and like, we can't do anything about it anyways. And so we gonna, we're going to, prioritize saving people's souls over caring for God's creation. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And if, if it's going to happen in September of 1986 or 1987. That's right. Yeah, let's go back. <laughs> and that's not, yeah, that's no time. Yeah, we don't have time yeah. to do all the things. Um, you also talk about culture wars. That's the second like little uh, of the three, stu- three prongs of your stool there. Uh, Jesus and John Wayne talks a lot about the different things that have happened in those decades for us when it comes to culture wars. Yeah. Why were we, and I'm going to say my, I'm going to put myself in this too. So ready to grab onto culture wars. Do you think, and what, what would you, what do you describe? What would you say are some examples of some of the things Mm -hmm. that became sort of 
outsized big mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. rally things we rallied around as things we could be against mm-hmm. um, that made us like this is what this is what white evangelicals were like we were against these things yeah that's right it seems like in the 80s and 90s culture war issues were <clears throat> clearly defined and unified around i think that's true today as well but there was something something special and something in the water in those decades that really solidified uh where we are today and so i talk about several in the book but the the, the main one i spend time on is abortion and i think that you know growing up as I, I mentioned in the book that when I was 18, my dad took me to the Ellen County Republican headquarters and yes. registered me as a card carrying Republican. And maybe there was actually like a little card that we cut out and put in my wallet. And then we had a celebratory lunch next door. It was a right. The closest thing I have to that was I am, I was a member of like Rush Limbaugh's like excellence yeah, in broadcasting right. you okay. know, association. <laughs> Oh, I can see my dad watch. Yeah, I just had a flashback to him, like in the room watching Rush Limbaugh every night. The lights were out. Oh my goodness! Yes, parallels. Um, (laughs) but the the expectation clearly was that, um, if you're a Republican, you have a certain. If you're a Christian, you vote Republican because of a certain set of beliefs, specifically abortion, because it was our job to protect the sanctity of life, and so. There was never a question that it was always that way. It was not until reading and researching, and I think a lot of us are beginning to see that it really wasn't until the rise of the moral majority in the late 70s into the 80s that we began to really understand that abortion was an issue that was a unifying kind of rallying cry for evangelicals pretty recently, like really in our lifetime. And so something I thought was always the case is actually more of a more of a modern kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. That was interesting for me, you know, so I talk about in the book, how do we value the beautiful gift of life with a whole holistic view of the sanctity of life? What does that mean? And and what are ways we misstepped, you know? And so that was a really big one. Um, Sometimes there are some that culture wars that seem, again, kind of silly now. For example, there was the parental advisory labels on music that Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife led with a council that testified on Congress and there was ratings and certain music was deemed satanic or there was backtracking on music where if you played a record the wrong way, maybe you'd hear a secret satanic message. And so again, and then of course, like everybody I knew then, like I got my Footloose record out and tried to play it backwards. Yeah. I was really worried about people I knew that played Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games. Dungeons and Dragons. Totally. That's another great one. So some of them are lighter, but it's just this kind of reinforcing that Christians are against these things and we have to protect ourselves from these things. Uh, We have to. So instead of being set apart because of direct service, because of serving our neighbor, because of loving and caring for the poor or the marginalized, our differentiators were about parental advisory labels and not shopping at certain stores and voting a certain way, you know? And so now as an adult, I certainly know that it's important as Christians to call all political parties into account and to understand the kind of influences behind we be- why we believe what we do around certain yeah. cultural issues. I think it's easy to default to being about the thing that we are against. I don't know why. It just seems like that's easier than putting our energy into what we want to build in the world. That's such a human thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think we all do it. We have to pause for once in a while and say, who who am I becoming? What, yeah, who right. am I here? Yeah, how am I being formed? What yeah. should 
performing me. Yeah. You um, were on an interview on po- the Cartographer's podcast with uh, the Hales. Um, yeah, they asked so you, uh, he asked you a really interesting question that I want to ask again here. He had mentioned uh, surmising, like, did the Cold War, the end of the Cold War and not having this tangible enemy, do you think that influenced you know, how that focus shifted to culture war things. I don't remember what your answer there, but um, that it was such an interesting thought and makes it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That it if yeah. we're less unified, sort of in this patriotic fight against an enemy, right? Um, who are we up against? And does that yeah. become kind of a spiritual enemy? I mean, I mean, for sure. But yeah. what happens if we have less kind of American patriot patriotic Christian unification against, you know, and by the way, as I mentioned in the book, I think that being a patriot is important. Patriotism is simply yeah. a country. I would consider myself a patriot, but that's different than nationalism, which is yeah. certainly the Christian nationalism, the idea of conflating uh, God and country, that God has a special blessing in America. I totally got off track, but I just said patriot and I felt like I... <laughs> yes, I, I get that because sometimes people are like, well, what? where is that line and what is the difference? Yeah, I, yeah. I think... Yeah, I think it is an interesting thing to consider if that left that gap of like something to unite us all. And yeah, yeah, and we love, I mean, we, it's a natural thing also to love where you live Mm -hmm. (laughs) and to think that you're special, that you're special, Um, but needing an enemy. Yeah. I was also thinking about after September 11th, there, Mm -hmm. You know, I drove around, uh, I was living in Muncie, Indiana. It's a speck of a town north of Indianapolis uh, during the t- during that time. I went to Taylor. It was close to my undergrad. Um, and the day after 9-11, there were all of these billboards, everything, the liquor store. It was like keg, 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 Muncie liquor headquarters. God bless America. Yes, <laughs> and the, yes. The Arby's was like, um, God bless America. So, you know. It was like this interesting unification with 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 language about God and our country. But it was this it was this moment where it seemed a little simpler. Like, of course, yeah. we, we do want God to bless America. That's true. And we do have this common unification against the folks that have perpetuated this incredible loss um, on 9-11. And so there was that kind of pocket, but that didn't seem to last very long. I mean. Yeah. The war was convoluted and 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 lengthy and expensive. it ends up being more complicated, you know. That's right. E- so like everything less, does. Yeah, and I think that also I think with Russia, it maybe was easier to personify an enemy thinking of all of these Cold War movies when yeah. we were kids or like Rocky Four, you know. But I think that by the time nine eleven came yeah. along, the enemy was a little, little bit harder to kind of personify culturally or in Hollywood or, or something. Yeah, between the That's Rocky movies when we were hearing about Russia and the Indiana Jones Nazis as the bad guys. That's right. That's uh, right. What do we have? <laughs> Where do we go from now? <laughs> Where can we go from there? <laughs> yes. You uh, didn't just point out what was problematic. Here's something I love. You talk about spiritual formation as kind of an antidote mm-hmm. to culture wars. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that... I I realized somewhere in in writing the book that my formation was a very um, American formation in that we were white and middle class and suburban and we went to the mall on Saturday and church on Sunday and there's nothing wrong with living in the suburbs or going to the mall. That's not what I mean. But the 
the, the liturgy, the work of my heart, the orientation of my heart was very much focused on consuming. And that's kind of about the third part of the book a little bit. You know, it was about being against certain things that defined what we were like as Christians. And it was about taking a little bit and just participating in the market. And so the the question was, if I'm being formed by these forces, in what ways am I being formed by Jesus? And I realized I was formed by evangelical culture. Yeah. But there was not a lot of formation based in the kind of call of Jesus, which I think is a beautiful, radical, hopeful call towards transformation by the last being made first, um, by us being people that work for justice because we believe that all all things that are sad will be made untrue. You know, I, and yeah. so I, I um didn't didn't understand what that looked like, how to access it for a really long time. And when we got out to Seattle and I began to kind of unravel and had a Sunday faith and a rest of the week faith, I thought something's got to give. I either have to be serious about this or I have to let it go because I'm not going to keep feeling a sense of guilt or like I'm managing these different identities and and continue to feel like it was almost like a bag of weights on my shoulder. I, I just had this image of a of a bag filled with rocks. There was a physicality to my discomfort with trying to hold on to my faith, but it didn't really change anything. And it wasn't until my, my mid to late 30s that I began to understand what real formation could look like and how it can invite transformation. So yeah. it took a, it took a long time. How would you where is that difference? between being discipled actually by Jesus and culture, even yeah. good Christian culture that means well? Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's a great question. I think that, I think that when it comes to formation, that work begins individually and then can kind of flow into community or community in health can lead us towards stronger formation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the invitation is to find a healthy individual pursuit of Jesus and then to have that reinforced and challenged and blessed in community to kind of see it manifest with other people. Um, And that happens to be hard to do since the church is a very broken place in America right now. And so finding a place that's safe to do that or make sense is is certainly a gift and a grace and not a given. And many of us are grappling with what that looks like or what church is. Um, But I think that for me, the call towards the kind of formation that transforms our life towards Jesus um, began in in kind of like in shutting up, you know, like in being quiet, in trying to understand that the kind of prayer I was doing as a kid and into my 20s and even 30 was had a frenetic energy and a lot mm-hmm. of, God, am I okay? God, take it away. Um, when I was little, I would pray for Jesus to come into my heart every night mm-hmm. for days and weeks and months. I think a lot of evangelical kids did. I just was uncertain and scared. And a, f- a flavor of that kind of weaved its way into the way I prayed. God, let my dad get better. I just, um, it wasn't like magic genie. I mean, like, let me find a parking spot, but more like, I'm scared. I'm worried. It's just like, God help. And I, yeah. I still pray that way now. But what changed was a settling, like a quieting and a lot of listening and stillness, which goes against our cultural space, our, our culture's pace and yeah. goes against my own pace sometimes. Yeah. So something, something shifted when I began to listen, when I began to read liturgy, when I would pray the Psalms, when I would, um, when I would stop praying a laundry list and start mm-hmm. to kind of settle, you know, and then, yeah. then there were some shifts or a kind of like an unlocking of something that I think called me more towards the person of Jesus and less towards my own need for security or a certain outcome. Yeah. 
I just shared an episode with Becky Castle Miller, who is super passionate about discipleship, and she's doing her PhD under Esau McCauley right now at Wheaton on emotions and uh, discipleship. Well, um, and, and Luke, mm-hmm. I'm missing something. It's just really fascinating. But she said with about discipleship is sometimes we need to like step back and ask ourselves, are we being discipled or discipling others into like this culture that we live in? Maybe it's a white suburban uh, American culture and we take it for granted because it seems like the normal thing or are we helping being formed and helping others be formed into Jesus? And there's a difference. Um, Not that white evangelical suburban culture is necessarily bad. There's a lot of neutral things about it, but that's not how Jesus grew up. That's not the culture. And so differentiating between those two things, I think is just a really, really very interesting thing. And it requires some intentionality, I think. A hundred percent. It is so easy to be swept up by either explicit or just intuitive cultural forces. It is so easy. It's easier than lifting a finger. Like we can just sense the pool of the market, right? Like I just, I go on my phone and I put on, I go onto Instagram and I, yeah, either want to be like someone else or I feel bad about myself or I think if I buy something like maybe I'm going to try yoga up with legs up the wall to see if I feel better I mean I love yoga it's not just I I can't get to a wellness practice that's going to get me there I can't drink another green smoothie and it's going to get me there (laughs) I can't use a hashtag or follow like a wellness influencer that uses spiritual language that's going to get me there like the only way towards wellness and wholeness um, is through, I think, brokenness, grief, trial, adversity. That's where empathy really comes. Yeah, that's that's a good, that's a good segue to the consumerism part of your book. I think Um, I would say nobody wants to think that they are following the prosperity gospel or are, have a consumerism that over is overarching part of their life. Um, But when you grow up in a place that is well, and, you know, our our parents bought houses for less than a hundred grand, <laughs> um, and had some really good years of economy too. I think it's easy to take for granted and think, God blessed me, and I worked hard. Yeah, and this is what happens. Um, you are able to get a house, and you talk about how in the eighties and nineties, being a Christian looked a really, you know, it was very specifically looked a very specific economic way it looked a very specific theological and political thing um talk to me about where where was the where is that line that ended up being crossed between being really grateful for good gifts mm. and messaging that made it seem like this is based yeah. on our obedience to the lord that we're having these houses or yeah, suburban it. life. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, I, your thoughts on yeah, I, I think that the, the tricky thing that happens is that the church, when it is not in health, can begin to sell services kind of like a marketplace mm-hmm. to affluent middle-class people. Um, and we see it on Instagram now in kind of a different 2023 way, you know, but I think that there's this, sort of church-wide or corporate-wide way of kind of thinking about big conferences, big publishing, um, <laughs> sort of the celebrity and celebr- celebrity kind of pastor thing. Mm-hmm. There's this way in which 
we kind of want to buy into that or have access to that. There's think a check, check to grow. It says everything's up and to the right, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah, totally. Doing the right thing. Yep. And so I think that um, there's that issue, but then there's this other thing, I think in a lot of us that I feel in myself is this need to customize or want to kind of control or persona or sort of make up personal, like shopping for churches, shopping for a certain spirituality that's kind of about finding a sort of wellness matched version of our own kind of searching or wandering. I think that the thing about church I really love is that it's uncomfortable sometimes. It's that I'm around people. I might not ask to a dinner party that aren't like me necessarily. It's it's a group of people I don't get to pick. I don't get to curate. It's not the same as like a social media feed or something. And that's- Yeah, you can't decide who else is going to decide they're going to be at this faith community that you're at. That's such a beautiful expression of being out of control, of showing up, even if you don't want to, or you feel uncomfortable. That's like the real way that our humanity grows, I think. And that's such a wonderful anecdote to this feeling like we can kind of shop around or or kind of there's kind of a frenetic or humming energy towards wandering or searching or not committing or putting one foot in. And so I think that there's something really beautiful about obedience in that way. That's yeah. kind of countercultural. Um so yeah. Yeah. I mean if this and if it's a healthy, you know, not abusive environment, making the decision to just stay can be really hard. Like that's the one thing you have control. Am I going to stay? In yeah. this awkward thing or am I going to leave yeah that's right it I mean if it, it is true that Jesus left us with the church and it's the best that we have because mm-hmm. you know we serve like a a, tri, a trinitarian god god left us in relationship yeah but it is really uncomfortable and really hard and um even in health it is easy to criticize the best most healthy church in two seconds because it's yeah. all just made up of us messing yes. up and doing our best yeah. you know uh, and there are best. some leaders in churches that deserve the criticism that they get uh but then there's also the everyday life of awkward people bumping up against each other that have different ideas about things different thoughts um different ways of, of relating and it can be hard it can be hard um That's right it's just a bunch of broken people doing our best but there's something so sweet underneath that if we can if we can stay and open our eyes to it i think yeah i think you're right uh it's it's been hard though i mean covid has made being in community hard physically like actually literally face to face side by side with people how to do that well how to balance all the concerns it's it's just made it a really tricky season for all of these things. And it's heightened a lot of the things that were already hard for our. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I've been at the same, the same church for, for a long time, for 18 years. And wow. I've seen many waves of up and ups and downs. There've been Sundays where there's been just a sense of like, are we, are we going to be okay? I mean, the pandemic has like, I think for many churches caused a, a pressing. I just like, I just have this image of it kind of being like, we're kind of being squeezed and we're yeah. losing mm-hmm. people. If we're not talking about social justice enough, we're losing people. If we talk about it too much, there's just such a pressure yeah, to, to be faithful and to move towards Jesus. But what I come back to is the, like the communion line and how mm-hmm. it links us to all of the saints that have gone 
before us and will come after us and widens our perspective to the global church that is, I think, thriving and really beautiful in places besides America. And so I, I think that really is an invitation for us to see this is our place in time. And if yeah. we have if we have hearts burning for change, if we're in a healthy place and um, maybe we're taking a break, maybe we've been burned and we need to take a break. Maybe we need to not be in the church we were in or take time to find something like that's I just think that's like a, a, a time where God can meet us. And that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So when I say church, I mean, I just even mean two or three gathered together, whatever that looks like. I don't have a frame on my mind, but I do think if we are able to stay, those of us that have hearts that are like burning for change and reform and for all the things that have been made, that have, are, have, are wrong to be made right and come to light, like that's a wonderful place to be, even though it feels lonely. But I don't think we are alone. There's a lot of us longing for that change. Yeah. After all that you've seen, Sarah, why are you still a Christian? Hmm. Well, I'm I'm still a Christian because I don't know where else I would go. I just think of that verse. Lord, where else would we go? Um, Sarah finishes answering that question in audio I have saved for the Patreon community. Don't forget to check that out if you're a member. And if you aren't, you can sign up anytime for access to all the bonus audio I've shared over the past couple of years. Just go to patreon.com slash untangledfaith. You can find a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sarah, her care in handling the story in a way that honored her dad and was honest about her experience really touched me. And I bet many of you can relate to her story. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would love it if you would share it with a friend. That is probably the best thing you can do to support the show. And if you're trying to remember the links I mentioned, check out the show notes in the app where you play this podcast or by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com and clicking on episodes. If you're on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pianic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.